charity isn't just about helping people who are down. It's about creating social fabric. The state is quite the opposite of society. It's all coercion rather than right. collaboration and, and voluntary persuasion. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Well, everyone, welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Today, I am delighted to have on the program uh, Connor Boyack. He is uh, an author of 39 books, including the popular Tuttle Twins Children series. Uh, he's a founder and president of the Libertas Institute, a high-impact think tank. Uh, he's executive producer of the Tuttle Twins show, and he's an investor in a few high-impact startups. And he's also an outlaw beekeeper. Uh, I've been reading his, uh, his several of his books with interest that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Connor, thanks very much for being our special guest on Gray Matter today. Thanks for having me. All right, it's my pleasure. Um, I've, as I said, I've read uh, now three of your books. Um, uh, the one, uh, Feardom, uh, which was just excellent. Uh, also, uh, uh, Christ versus Caesar, uh, and uh, and your 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 first book in the two part series on Christian liberty, uh, which I really enjoyed. I think it was one of your earlier books, and so I want to talk about those and feature those. But before we do that, just to frame our discussion. I've got a couple of uh, aphorisms. I know you're fond of these from reading your books. Uh, the first one is from uh, Joseph Fielding Smith. This is from Doctrines of uh, Salvation, Volume 3. Uh, and he said something that I think is very prescient. I think you'll agree, Connor. Uh, he wrote, Satan has control now. No matter where you look, he's in control. Even in our own land, he's guiding the governments as far as the Lord will permit him. That is why there's so much strife, turmoil, and confusion all over the earth. One mastermind is governing the nations, and it is Satan himself. Uh, the other one that, uh, that the aphorism I want to sort of frame our discussion with is from someone whom you've quoted often in your books, and that's uh, C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. And then finally, one more from an author that, uh, that you quote from, uh, I guess more than an author, really a founding father of liberty. Thomas Jefferson, who wrote that rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. So, uh, Connor, uh, before we get into talking about um, some of these things in more detail, I want to share with you from reading your books. Um, I'm certainly familiar with the Bible. I spent a couple of years at Christian college and I was confirmed in the Lutheran church. And I studied the Bible as literature. But the one of the really wonderful things about reading your books is that I discovered that I'm really astonishingly ignorant of the whole Book of Mormon and the Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And really, uh, I was, it was really extraordinary to read your books because it opened up uh, my mind to all of these different uh, books and uh, whole different avenues of theology. So my first question to you is, in, in writing your books, is that is that one of your goals that that is to to sort of uh, you know spread the word and awareness of of uh, you know Mormon theology or is that something that's just sort of incidental that comes through in your writing? It's uh, a good question. I would say about ninety percent of my books are just general audience uh, books that don't uh, discuss or. Um, 
promote, you know, religion at all. Their books on economics or uh, education or parenting or, you know, a book for teenagers about how to not suck at life, uh, 89 <laughs> tips for teens. And so most of my books uh, are just general audience and they're all, they all revolve around my core goal, which is, you know, what does human flourishing look like? How can people be free and prosperous? What are the rules we need to live by individually that we as a society need to live by in order to uh, best thrive as humans? And so that's kind of the modus operandi of my books in general. Now, 10%-ish of the books that I write do have a, a more narrow audience in mind, a religious audience, either uh, members of my own faith, uh, in the case of the first book I wrote that you mentioned, Latter-day mm -hmm. Liberty, um, or with like Christ versus Caesar, though that did talk about a lot of um, Mormon-related things, there was just, I mean, I would say the majority of the book is more just talking about the Bible and general Christian concepts. I agree, concepts. yeah, yeah. My, my, my feeling is this, uh, and obviously I'm biased, so I'll qualify it that way, uh, for people who love liberty, then you should love Mormons or Mormonism. Our scriptures, mm -hmm. the Book of Mormon and other revelations we have are full of doctrine and teachings that jive very well with this idea of uh, free agency, being able to just, mm -hmm. you know, do what you uh, want rather than being controlled by other people. The fact that as you read that quote from Joseph Fielding Smith, that there's this kind of war in heaven uh, that we read about in Isaiah and elsewhere in the mm -hmm. Bible that really continues today and that those same satanic forces and influences and others are operating today. And our Mormon scripture, in addition to the Bible, is full of those stories and teachings. So my perspective is that uh, our theology in particular, our faith is very friendly towards this idea of personal freedom and individual liberty, human flourishing. Um, and so I do dedicate some of my books just to kind of focusing on that because I believe it deserves some attention. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the, just to pick up that thread a little bit, uh, I know in one of your books, I believe it was, uh, it was Christ versus Caesar. You, you talk about uh, how closely uh, Mormonism, we can call it that, uh, sort of aligns with a libertarian uh, ethos in a lot of ways. But you yeah. also draw this really interesting distinction. It's a subtle one, but I think it's an important one between uh, agency and religious freedom. Do you want to maybe maybe just extrapolate on that a little bit? Because I know you talk about a lot in in two of the books that you that you wrote, Freedom yep. and also Christ versus Caesar. But th that was that was something I hadn't read about before. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just extrapolating on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I feel like too often when we refer to religious liberty or religious freedom, we put it in a tiny little box. We, we narrowly construe what it means and thus uh, limit its potential. So specifically what I mean is this. The way that the courts over the decades have interpreted religious freedom, it typically centers around belief and not action. In other words, religious freedom, oh, you're, you're free to believe whatever you want, right? But, oh, the moment that you don't want to bake a cake for, you know, a gay couple because uh, of your religious freedom or the moment you don't want to rent out your apartment to, you know, a, a, a transsexual individual, if you have concerns about that, or the moment your church doesn't want to marry, you know, gay people because that goes against your doctrine or whatever the issue might be, um, the, the government typically looks disfavorably on 
so-called religious freedom when that religious motivation or belief leads to an action. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of the early Mormon church, when polygamy was being practiced by many, uh, that's what led to a lot of these court battles where they really put this question of religious freedom um, in focus. And the way the Supreme Court ruled is they basically said, we can't allow actions uh, based on religious freedom to stand because, you know, what if, uh, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here, but the, the court ruling said something like, what if uh, there was a religion that called for beheading uh, people or, you know, uh, I think they have that in Saudi Arabia, Connor. <laughs> for, for, yeah, for sure. It's not a speculative type of thing, right? right? So the court was saying, oh, we could clearly not focus on religious freedom here because religious beliefs can lead to all kinds of crazy stuff. Well, of course, mm -hmm. the right answer there, the proper interpretation of it is, of course, if you're harming another person, then that is an appropriate area to intervene to protect that other person. But right. consensual activity, think of uh, Native American who use peyote, uh, right, which is a controlled right. substance that's prohibited by a law in the United States. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so they had to fight and go to court to be able to use this sacramental, um, you know, substance. And uh, fortunately for them, they were able to finally win that battle. But that, that shows that there's a contrast between just religious belief and religious action. And I think we're very careful about uh defining what we mean when we say we're focused on religious freedom because if it's all just about me being able to believe what i want no one's really pushing against you uh really the question is to what extent can i publicly live in accordance with my private belief in ways that other people may not like but look it's my property it's my home it's my business they are an extension mm -hmm. of me and i should be able to use this property or my business in a way that comports with my own belief. Um, and so when I say mm -hmm. religious freedom, it's this much more broad term that means people should be able to express themselves in ways that don't harm other people, that don't cause anyone any uh, you know, physical harm, uh, but that aligns with their faith so that they can be consistent with their own beliefs. So uh, Connor, on your website, um, you state that liberty won't defend itself. And this sort of picking up this thread that you were just, uh, that you were, you were talking about, um, is that part of the impetus for uh, the Libertas project? That is to sort of put uh, this idea of liberty into action. I just want to add something else. I don't know if you've, uh, you're familiar with uh, Eric Metaxas and his books. He's a I recent am. guest in our program, and he's written a, a wonderful book called The Letter to the American Church. And the theme of the book is that it's, it's a call to action, saying that basically the same thing that you're saying now, that it's not enough just to go to church and to call ourselves Christians and to be nice. Now, what we're what we're living through right now, perhaps we have been living through for a very long time, for over 2000 years, is a time in which we've got to take our faith into action. Is that part of what this this Libertas project is for you? Yeah, not so much on the religious side, but definitely on the political and, and freedom side. Uh, Libertas is a what's called a think tank. It means we're a, an NGO or a nonprofit uh, organization. And our chief focus is uh, basically standing up for people who can't or won't stand up for themselves. If you're a large corporation and there's some regulation that threatens your business or you know the ability to serve your customers, 
chances are you can afford lobbyists and lawyers and go you know fight for your rights and that's very common it happens all the time but the average citizen who's being nickel and dimed with tax increases or whose tiny little business is being overregulated or you know parents in a low income community where the schools are just doing an awful job and they want better options for their kids these these types of people historically have never really had good representation They've never had people standing up for them. And so we started in my now adopted home state of Utah. I'm from California. I like to tell people I left back in the days when you could find a U-Haul truck to leave. And now that's uh, <laughs> difficult to, to find anymore um, unless you pay a, a premium. So I live in Utah now and I started Libertas in uh, 2011 with the intent to try and stand up for people's rights and uh, push back on government growth and you know restrictive laws and so forth. We've now since expanded across the country, um, helping other states do uh, the same thing. I would point your listeners to a website uh, called uh, spn.org. This mm -hmm. stands for State Policy Network. We are a member of this. They're a national organization of freedom-minded think tanks like Libertas. And so right. uh, for those who live in the United States, I should uh, say, uh, then SPN is a way where you can find uh, who's in your backyard. For any of your viewers who are in other countries, there's a great organization called Atlas Network. That's atlasnetwork.org. And so on either of these websites, spn.org or atlasnetwork.org, you can go look at the directory and you can see which organizations are operating in your state, your country, your backyard, so that you can go support them, learn from them, work with them, volunteer. Um, they're just good opportunities to figure out who's in your community working on these issues and go support them because they need support. And, you know, speaking of support, this 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 takes a, a number of uh, a variety of forms. I was looking on the website. You've got to innovative policy reform. Uh, nail it, then scale it, impactful education, courtroom battles, youth entrepreneurship, outreach and initiatives, uh, turn your enemies into evangelists. That's an interesting one. I enjoy going through that link. And civic education uh, is broken and teachers agree. So I want to turn from there uh, to talking about uh, your, your, your really prolific authorship of children's books uh, and the Tuttle Twins series. Uh, how did you get started with that? And what's the genesis of that idea? And what's the goal of, of you know, uh, this, this very, very successful Tuttle Twin series? So uh, as you point out, these books are primarily for children. That's at least how we, we uh, what we thought when we first started. We've since come to realize that the Tuttle Twins books are instead what we now call family resources, because while they're written at a children's level for the kids, quite often mom and dad never learned this stuff in school or certainly not in a way that we're explaining it that's super simple and relevant. So we get comments from parents all the time saying, oh my gosh, I never learned that before, or this finally made sense, uh, never made sense before. So these are more family resources. And it all started because myself as a father, uh, years ago, after starting Libertas Institute and working on reforming these laws and helping people, I realized that I wanted to share with my kids what dad does all day for work. And I didn't want to say, oh, I just talk to people on the phone or I go to meetings or I, you know, type on the computer. I wanted to share with them the substantive ideas of what I'm passionate about and what I fight for. So I literally went on Amazon 
I looked for books that would help me talk to my kids about, you know, property rights or uh, free markets or money and so forth and just came up short. There was really, this is in 2014. So I was talking with a buddy of mine, Elijah, who's now the illustrator and my partner in this project. And he had kids the same age. He was wanting the same goals. And so we kind of, you know, kicked around this idea. We did a book. We had no idea if it would succeed. We didn't know if anyone else would care, you know, but we wanted it to exist. So we willed it into existence and turns out a lot of people, you know, liked it. And they said, when are you doing another one? I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, we'll do another one. So it just kind of snowballed from there. Now we've got, gosh, uh, 25 to 30 books uh, for toddlers, teens, every age in between. We've got curriculum, a podcast, a game, a cartoon. And we're just really trying to build out a lot of content so that no matter the age of a child or how they like to learn, whether whether it's viewing something or like doing a worksheet or reading a book, we want to make sure we have content for kids of all ages and learning styles so that these ideas of human flourishing and a free society are accessible to them and that we can support every family in having far more meaningful conversations around the dinner table that are facilitated, hopefully, by the televisions. Mm-hmm. I take it that part of this, Connor, is a reaction to some of the things that are being taught in schools today, things like critical race theory, things like radical transgenderism, things like toxic masculinity. There's nothing in the schools about financial literacy. In fact, there wasn't even when I went to school. And it seems to me that that should be sort of number one with the bullet, the number one thing kids should be learning nowadays. So, um, (laughs) yes, you would think if we thought, yes. and and so uh, is part of the goal of the of the Tuttle Twin series uh, to give parents tools so that they can counteract what these kids are getting in, in public school, or do you advocate you know homeschooling and and you know taking kids right out of public school? Well, our audience is split right down the middle. When we've done surveys, about half of them homeschool, and the other half are in public or private or charter school. Um, and so for the Parents who homeschool, clearly this can be used as, you know, curriculum to teach civics or history or economics. And many homeschool families use our materials that way. For the families where their kids are going to school, our resources are primarily used by those families as a supplement, or I might even say as a counter agent, because those families know, as you just pointed out, that not only are their kids not being taught the good stuff in school, their heads are being filled with a bunch of bad stuff. And Mm -hmm. so... Uh, these families at home have resources now with the Tuttle Twins to kind of uh, undo some of the stuff that they may have been taught in school, or at least support them with good ideas and truth uh, to empower them as they go out into the world and are exposed to different ideas from from their teachers. So they're really adaptable in that way. Personally, I do advocate uh, anything but government schools. I think uh, there's amazing That's pretty clear from your books out there. You, yeah, yeah. And you, yeah, and you yeah. explain I, why. Yeah, I wear that oh. on my sleeve. I'm not shy yeah. about uh, about that at all. Yeah, I was fact, not aware. Yeah. I was not aware of the right. whole history of of Dewey and how you explain all that. That was really shocking to read yeah. that in your books. Yeah. yeah, the the problem I, I I would say I have with a lot of people is they don't really know their history. They don't know mm-hmm. uh, how these institutions started. They don't know what the goals were of the people who started them. And so if we understand our history, I think we can better plan for our future. But many parents are just like, oh, I went to public school. I turned out fine. So, you know, it'll be OK for my kids. Um, I, I believe that the 
good teachers, I mean, this happens in a variety of industries. Think law enforcement. I think a lot of good cops leave the profession, uh, both because of the, the pay and, uh, you know, lack of public support or whatever. And so you end up with, you know, people in the profession who might not be the best uh, ones that to be engaging with the public. I think the same trend happens in uh, government schools. I think the better teachers leave for better opportunities, starting their own businesses, starting a micro school, um, you know, I know many public school teachers who say, I homeschool my kids. I don't, I won't send them to the very place that I work. And they're looking for the exits, trying to figure out what their next career move is. And this is a trend. So it again, leaves behind the types of people who see the classroom as a platform upon which to advance their activism and their kind of ideological indoctrination in a way. And those aren't the best teachers that I think most parents would want for their kids. <clears throat> so to me, it really boils down to one word, and that is intentionality. Mm -hmm. If you are sending your kids to a government school or a private school or whatever, as long as you're very intentional, your kids will turn out fine. If you're reviewing what they're learning, if you're challenging what the teacher said, if you're engaged, if you're being intentional, things will work out. But the same thing with homeschooling. You could just sit your kid in front of curriculum and let them go and you know, right. not really support them. Intentionality is the key. So that's my call for parents is let's just lean into this a little bit. Stop delegating everything to the schools. Stop outsourcing your parental responsibility. We are in what I cons <clears throat> consider to be a mind war, a war on truth. I believe mm -hmm. that our children's minds are ground zero for the conflict. And if we as parents are not intentional in understanding this reality that we are in, this psychological warfare, our children will become a casualty because we are not equipping them with body armor, a shield, mm -hmm. a weapon to defend themselves. We need to be intentional. We need to be aware of these forces swirling around in our society. And uh, and to that end, you know, with Tuttle Twins and other things, we're trying to get out there and wake parents up, you might say, to the reality of what's going on so that they can better uh, be intentional with their children and help them understand and embrace truth in a world that's full of lies. Yeah, I I, I believe it was in Feardom where you actually quoted from Mein Kampf, uh, Hitler's book, which is written about 100 years ago, where he basically said uh, this is why he started the Hitler Jugend. Uh, and the idea was that, well, if, 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 I can, if I can control the youth and indoctrinate the youth, you know, I control the future. And, and, and the parents might be against, against me, but they're going to pass on. And sure enough, you know, the 12 and 13-year-olds that, that uh, came into the Hitler Youth in uh, 1933, 1934, those were the young men who were fighting the war five or six years later, weren't they? So they, they, yeah. there is a lot of danger here. So Libertas now are getting a fuller picture. It's a, really about community engagement, isn't it? That's, how, that's where you can sort of move mountains. You move mountains one rock at a time by getting engaged, getting involved in your communities, connecting with the churches and, and uh, you, know, you know, council members, uh, you know, school board trustees, the, the, the people who, are, who, can, who can make things happen in your community. That's, that's sort of what a big part of what Libertas is, is uh, really empowering people so they have tools uh, so they can make a change and get connected and make local change in their communities. And by extension, that sort of branches out. And that's, that's, that's how we affect cities and states and countries and so on, right? Is that, is that part of the, part of the, part there, of the idea? There is definitely strength in numbers. When right. we or any organization can show up and say, we represent these 20,000 people, or look how many people signed this petition, or you know, there's all these people that agree with us. There's, there's always strength in numbers to be able to stand up. 
uh, for what's right. So it definitely is an aspect of our work trying to empower the average you know, voter or citizen to follow what's happening, to engage. The sad reality is in today's world, we're so bombarded with distractions and commitments and urgent things that it becomes very difficult to get people to uh, to participate, to engage. They've got, they're pulled in 83 different directions and there are other things that have higher priority. That's where groups like ours kind of step in to fill the void because through support from donors, we are able to spend uh, our every day, all day focused on this where other people can only afford little bits of time. So in a sense, we're kind of tasked by our donors and community of speaking up for them because they can't be attending those meetings. They can't be as engaged as we can, where now this is our day job and we can focus just on that. So the groups that I mentioned, whether it's SPN.org or AtlasNetwork.org, you can find those other groups in your community. And it's the same thing with them. They're trying to do this full time, all day, every day, um, so that even if you can't be engaged or you lack a lot of time, you can still support the groups in your backyard that are trying to do it on your behalf. And, uh, and maybe you can volunteer a little bit of time, but then maybe you can make a donation or something to help those groups be able to uh, speak up for you uh, since maybe you can't be in all those meetings like they can. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's talked about in your books that really struck me, uh, which is, I guess, a, um, a, a coincidence or a result of the expansion of the size and scope of the state, is um, people are not as charitable as they used to be. And more importantly, they're not they're not focusing their charity. There's an inter- interesting uh, statistic in one of your books. I think you said that since Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought in the New Deal in America, about half of charitable giving was done privately, and that shrunk down to uh, I think something like two or three percent. So what what people are doing is they're they're taking their sort of hands off the wheel and saying, well, you know, I paid my taxes, I gave at the office. And so they're not engaging in their communities and, and really supporting the causes that are important to them and not getting out there and, you know, helping out at a soup kitchen or a church bake sale or something like that. And uh, what you say is that that direct engagement, that's really, really important. And it's much better than uh, just leaving it up to the to, to the state, because I think you describe that the state doesn't do a very good job, actually, of making sure that that money gets to the people who need it most. Well, let's use me as an example. Let's say I lose my job and insurance and I'm having a really rough time. So there's there's two paths that I could go. One is the private charity path, whether maybe it's my parents stepping in to float me some money or my siblings or my extended family. Maybe it's my church. Maybe it's a community group, something like that. So let's just say any one of those groups steps in to help me financially for a few months while I get my, my legs back under me. I know these people. These people know me. I don't want to defraud them. I I have a measure of accountability to them, a a desire for reciprocity. They've helped me. I need to pay it back or pay it forward and, uh, and make sure that I do right by the people that I care about where I have a relationship with them. And look, the people that are providing me charity, they probably benefit just like I'm benefiting. Yes, I benefit financially. They probably benefit spiritually, socially, morally, because they're able to help another person. And we all feel better and are doing good when we're doing that. So if I go the other path, if I show up at the government welfare department or whatever, and I'm like, hey, I need all this help. I need 
I need, you know, rent payments. I need food stamps. I need, you know, healthcare. I need all these things. Uh, I'm probably going to get it because there's an abundance of government welfare programs now. So I'll get the relief that I need. However, there's zero accountability. Uh, I'm more incentivized to get whatever I can get uh, to spend it however I want to spend it. I feel no obligation to the givers of, of that money, the, the people from whom it was taken, I should say, via taxes. Um, I have no connection to them. I don't know who they are. There's no way that they'll ever know about me. And so you break those human bonds that are, are the real power of charity. It's, it, charity isn't just about helping people who are down. It's about creating social fabric. You know, people bonding together, helping one another, the, the giver and the recipient both being blessed as a part of that relationship, um, having this kind of mutual exchange uh, that when you do that in the aggregate, that creates a strong society early in, in America, which is what I know more about. There were uh, what were called mutual aid societies and they were mm -hmm. everywhere. Right. These were private charitable groups. They would offer health insurance, no. life insurance, death insurance, orphan care, elderly care, all this kind of stuff. And it was extremely common for people who needed uh, support to be part of these types of organizations. Well, of course, as you point out with uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, um, when the New Deal in the States was created, the, the basically the beginning splash of the modern welfare state, these mutual aid societies quickly went out of business. In economics, mm -hmm. this is called the crowd out effect. They were crowded out of the right. market because the state stepped in and it's so big and so powerful. Right. And it's it's exactly what you said earlier. If I am Joe Q Public, why would I donate to a, an organization or a church or be part of a mutual aid society if money is already being taken from me to satisfy those purposes. I will feel mentally like I've checked that box, even though it was under duress and it was taken by taxes. Nonetheless, I'm going to think, oh, okay, well, I've been charitable now and, uh, and I'm unlikely to do extra charity in addition to what is taken from me. So not only are we subsidizing a very inefficient way of helping the poor and the needy, very, very inefficient. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also uh, weakening, burning uh, the social fabric that is created when you do have a private charity care model uh, and, and what, where the state steps in the middle, it, it is uh, the state is quite the opposite of society. It's all coercion rather than right. collaboration and, and voluntary persuasion. And it, the, the long-term effects of that, of having just this total welfare state, I think are very unfortunate and destructive. And I think we're seeing a lot of that play out right now with increased fatherlessness and mm -hmm. uh, people growing up in just broken homes because uh, the single mom can get fully subsidized and you know, yeah. we just we don't have these great social uh, institutions or strong ones that we used to. And that's, I think, very unfortunate. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of uh, a book by Dr. Thomas Sowell, who is at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. He's written a number of wonderful books. I'm sure you're aware of them. One of them is called oh, yes. Intellectuals and Race. And in there he talks about how, you know, the 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 new society, the Lyndon B. Johnson affirmative action, how it just really ravaged uh you know the african-american family prior to prior to uh, that coming prior to quote-unquote affirmative action dr soul talks about how uh, black families actually were lower in in, in divorce uh, they actually uh, were very dominant in the south in terms of the construction industry and the creation of this welfare state made it more uh, uh, frankly profitable for a single mom to have 
to be on welfare than to have a, a father in the home with low paying jobs. And Dr. Soule proves, I think, with very persuasive economic data, hard data, that there's a direct uh, connection between fatherlessness, as you mentioned, uh, not, not just in the black community, but especially acutely in the black community and all of these other social harms, you know, in terms of them uh, being, uh, uh, you know, overrepresented in the prison populations, uh, economic disparities and all of these other things. Um, so there's a lot to be said for a smaller government. I think it was Milton Friedman who said, you know, the bigger the government, the smaller the individual. And uh, yeah. that's, I guess that that's part of what, of what uh, you're saying with, uh, with uh, Libertas and also in your books, right? Uh, it is. In fact, I think that's a good uh, opportunity to speak briefly about a brand new book that I ha have oh, great. Uh, that just came out that's on this exact issue. So this is called Children of the Collective. Uh, oh, Glenn Beck wonderful. was kind enough to do the foreword uh, for this book. And and this book is all about what we, you were just discussing, in particular, uh, why collectives throughout collectivists throughout history have always tried to go after the children. You pointed out Hitler Youth earlier, yeah, how they're always yeah. trying to basically indoctrinate the young. And the Milton Friedman quote is interesting, right? The um, the greater this you know state grows, the more it grows, the weaker the individual is. There's th this whole book, Children of the Collective. It's basically a book length treatment of a single quote. Um, in fact, probably in one of the books of mine that you've read, I shared this quote before, and it stuck with me for years in the back of my head that this quote is so a powerful a descriptor, better, I think, than Friedman's quote in describing the threat of the state to the individual. So this was a quote by Michael Novak. Right. And he's a, a theologian, writer, mm -hmm. prolific, uh, written as many books as I have, probably more. So here's his, here's his quote. He says, between the omnipotent state and the naked individual looms the first line of resistance against totalitarianism. The economically and politically independent family protecting mm -hmm. the space within which free and independent individuals may receive the necessary years of nurture. Mm -hmm. So he's positioning the family as the mediating institution between the, the omnipotent state and the, you know, theoretically naked, you know, spiritually naked, socially naked, intellectually naked individual, and that the family needs to be the institution that basically nurtures the children and turns them into the first line of resistance against totalitarianism, which right. means that as we have broken families, as you and I have been discussing uh, just recently, as we have families weakened, therefore the individual is not shielded because the family is not economically and politically independent. And by extension, then they become dependent upon the state for all of its various programs and school and welfare and all the rest. And so we become an atomized society, uh, not, not, a, not a society of social fabric where we're all interconnected in what Alexis de Tocqueville called mediating institutions, right. yes. uh, where we're all helping one another. That's mm -hmm. this interconnectedness of society. Instead, with the family weekend, we become atomized, each, each uh, atom mm -hmm. breaking off from its kind of uh, atomic chains. And we have a direct relationship instead with the state. And right. so instead of this cohesive social fabric, we have this one-to-one -one relationship, everyone with the state. So it grows in power and size and scope because it has to, to fulfill all those demands. And pretty soon we're left with weak families, weak individuals and society in tatters. And so anyways, that's, that's kind of the focus of the book is to take that quote and say, um, 
You know, what is, let, let's dig in deep to this quote and understand why are individuals naked? How is the state omnipotent? Why is the family the first line of resistance? And more specifically, what can I as a mom or dad do to protect my kids, to be that mm -hmm. first line? Of so the mm -hmm. book has some very kind of actionable ideas of what parents can consider uh, in order to uh, better protect their kids and have a strong family. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's noteworthy also that this, uh, if we can call it leftist ideology, uh, whatever form it takes, it seems to be attack on the on the family. And uh, ironically, I was reading a quotation from Vladimir Putin of all people this morning, and he was talking about the Ukraine war uh, as an ideological one, and uh, he's saying now that Russia is not only uh, fighting the war against Ukraine, they're actually fighting a war against the West over ideology because they're yeah. rejecting all of this leftist ideology. And he talks specifically about how Russia stands for the integrity of families. Um, that must what be a world, one of the greatest right? what, what, Yeah, what, what <laughs> a world. A, I feel like this is upside down. And he's, he's yeah. not wrong no, on that point, no, right? He's not, no. Which just feels really awkward to agree with the guy. Yeah. But uh, yeah. it's like when Osama bin Laden, when he wrote his sure. letter to the to the American people about why he was doing what he was doing, yeah. like the guy's a schmuck, but he wasn't wrong. Americans yeah. did have all these military bases and they were, you know, bombing these countries. So it, it feels weird to agree with uh, these types of people. But I think Putin is right that the West has kind of gone insane and uh, yeah. I don't think I, I think that's cover. I don't think that's the reason yes. why he's really yes, doing what he's doing. But he's uh, not the a fact guy. that we're so weak and awful gives people like him a, a foothold to say, oh, I'm really trying to oppose yeah. all you crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of uh, Putin and despots, let's talk a little bit about a book that you wrote uh, uh, about 10 years ago called Feardom, uh, which I really enjoyed way before its time, actually, because it, it actually foresaw a lot of the things that we we're now living through, including COVID. Uh, and when I read this book, Connor, I want to tell you, uh, it really reminded me of another book that I read recently because we interviewed, had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Robert Malone. And, mm -hmm. and during that conversation, we talked about Matthias Desmond's book called The, the Psychology of, of Totalitarianism. I don't know if you've seen that book, but I if you haven't, no. it's brilliant. And a lot of the stuff that he talks about there um, is actually discussed in your book about how despots weaponize fear to control individuals and to control us politically and emotionally. Uh, so you want to talk a little bit about that book uh, and, and how you sort of saw this stuff coming, you know, 10 years ago. I was kind of shocked when I saw it was written and released in 2014. Yeah, no, thank you. It, uh, that book, I was sad to write in the sense that uh, I felt like the ideas it contains are always going to be relevant because uh, I'm not going to claim I had the ability to foresee anything. If anything, the book is really focused on the war on terror in a post 9-11 world, talking about how we were scared uh, into supporting this massive government, this massive military mm -hmm. empire and the Patriot Act and the TSA and all the rest. Right. And so it was more of a reactionary book, seeing now what we have been living through, but then identifying the trend that happened in decades and centuries before even that. And then, of course, that trend continues today with uh, many things, including uh, COVID. We like to think of ourselves, especially those of us who care about freedom and we're kind of intellectual or independent minded or whatever. We like to think of ourselves as logical creatures. Right. Uh, we are not logical creatures. Humans are not logical creatures. They are psychological creatures. 
which means that our brains and the way our information is processed in our minds uh, is deeply affected by sociocultural and emotional and even medical type of things going on. And so uh, the sad reality is that there are many people, uh, you call them propagandists or politicians or pundits or whoever, that understand the way the human mind works. Mm -hmm. They understand the way to persuade people um, to scare them into submission. Uh, it's the reason why uh, uh, governments throughout history have operated what are called false flag events. Because if they can uh, make someone scared and let this bad thing happen, then they're more likely to go support war. And that's always good for the sitting president to look like you're the, the one rallying the troops. Uh, a very brief example that I love to share uh, on this point. Uh, I believe I talked about this in the book. Uh, it's been a while since I, I went back and uh, read Feardom, but uh, I've certainly written about it many times since. Uh, in the During the Cuban Missile Crisis, when uh, the Soviets were in right. America's mm -hmm. back door down there, there was a whole yeah. baloo about all of that. And uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States military, the top brass, proposed a plan to the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, in which, uh, because they wanted to go intervene in Cuba, they wanted to escalate the conflict and put a stop to what was happening in Cuba. Um, but the American public was not at the time supportive of military intervention. Polling was showing right. that people were like, oh no, yeah. back up. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff literally pen on paper came up with a plan in which they would bomb American cities in South Florida and blame it on the Cubans. They would shoot down rafts and makeshift boats coming from Cuba of refugees. And they would basically, and I think they even proposed doing a, a bombing a, a plane as well, but they were literally proposing killing uh, Cuban exiles and American citizens caught in the, the bombings and the shootings, uh, killing these people, blaming it falsely on the Cubans, as a way to incite the American public to support war and thus get what they wanted. These are the individuals who have sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, wow. to protect the public. You know, Connor, this, this almost sounds like someone blowing up an underwater pipeline and shooting down balloons from China. Exactly, right? <laughs> and so we're good historically about looking at these incidents and saying, oh, but we're so bad as a society of saying, you know, maybe that thing happening right now isn't the way that it's being portrayed. Mm -hmm. The only reason this did not happen, uh, what's called Operation Northwoods, is because JFK shot the idea down. But imagine if he had said yes, right. then the American public would all have been deceived. They would have all been led to, to believe that this was, in fact, Cuban revolutionaries or whoever mm -hmm. that was doing this. Our history books would be teaching that to kids. That would be the dominant narrative. And the documents that were declassified, which is why we even know about this right. now, likely would have been kept classified top secret to continue to cover up what actually did happen. And we would all be misinformed and operating on false information. So to your point yeah. about you know, the, the, uh, the water pipeline, the balloons and other things today, what are we being misinformed about and how are our, so again, we're logical creatures, but we're deeply emotional. And when these scary things happen that we're worried about, we're more likely to support government intervention and in the process, lose our freedoms. And so that's what the book Feardom is about. And again, when I published it, I was, I was like, I was happy that it was so relevant a book to be able to, you know, right. sell a lot of copies and form a lot of people. But I was also sad that that book will never not be relevant because these, yeah. these things 
weaponization of our fear continues to happen today yeah. and far into the future it will. I think you quote in that book, H.L. Uh, Mencken, this famous quotation about how governments have a vested interest in continuing to manufacture emergency after emergency. Um, right. it, it almost sounds, Connor, as though uh, your newest book uh, sort of picks up the thread of fearedom a little bit, uh, maybe in the, in the aftermath of things like COVID and uh, vaccine mandates and so on. Is that is that a fair fair assessment? Yeah, I, I don't directly connect the two, but I think it is fair to say that the one is an outgrowth of the other, uh, right. that as we see why as a society that we're so willing to give in to the collectivists and their plans of state dominance and, and so forth, it all centers around this desire to be safe. Uh, it was Benjamin Franklin who you know once quipped that those who desire or pri uh, prioritize safety over liberty will have neither. Uh, they'll lose both and, and deserve neither of them because in the quest for safety, I mean, we could be kept safe if we were all wrapped in bubble wrap all the time and not allowed to leave our homes and, you know, but that's that's not a life worth living or during COVID, right? The fact that like uh, old folks would be trapped in, in these buildings and not allowed to leave or their family wow. couldn't visit. Uh, they'd have to wave through the window down into the parking yeah. lot. Like at, at some point, I, I think life has to be lived despite, you know, risks that are involved. And do we really want to tolerate a society in which we are all kept safe? Because if it can save just one life, right, there has to be a trade-off, there has to be a balance. And so in Children of the Collective, the idea of the book is to tell parents like, hey, let's be bold in, in you know, advancing freedom, protecting our kids, pushing back on the state. Uh, yes, it'll be risky. Yes, it'll be an adventure. It's not going to be tame and easy, uh, but life wasn't meant to be. So let's lean no. into it. Well, and uh, of course, the, the the creator of life, uh, uh, just sort of, sort of uh, by way of segue, would say that, uh, of course, uh, a meaningful life is not a safe one. Uh, certainly, that's not the way our Lord lived. Uh, that wasn't his ministry. That's not his message. And so the last book I want to talk to you about, uh, which uh, was really, I, th I felt uh, quite unique. I've never read a book like this, this Christ versus Caesar um, and Caesar, I should say, for those who haven't read it, it's not necessarily about Rome. Caesar is a is a is a is a basically a euphemism, a catch-all term for the state. This is a really fascinating read because you talk about how we cannot serve two masters as Christians. That we've got to decide um, who who is who who is first, who is foremost. And you talk a lot about natural law. I really love your discussion of natural law, but I think this is really that this book is is really important in the context of uh, something that we are losing in the West, both in the United States and Canada, is the idea of the rule of law and its importance. Because uh, with the the exaltation of the state above the individual, even above God, um, we're losing the rule of law. Because how can our rulers conform to the rule of law if they're, if they're not prepared to acknowledge that there's a higher power? Uh, and, and this idea of the need to have in order to have a free society, you really need to have God at the head of the state. Would you agree with that sort of uh, um, summary or assessment of the book? I, I might go one step further. Uh, be, beyond the rule of law, I would say, I, I would say, yes, we have an attack on the rule of law and undermining of the rule of law. But I think that could also be argued in a way that it is a symptom of what's really going on. Uh, 
underlying that. And I think that we have a war on truth. We have a oh, war yes. on objective reality, yes. right? Yes. Because having a rule of law is predicated on the foundation of a set of shared ideals and understanding about the way the world works and what's actually happening. But if we lose that foundation of you know what is right and what is good and what is wrong and what is true, um, if we can't agree as individuals, right now they have this sinister idea of you speak your truth, I'll yes. speak mine, right? What's right. good for you, whatever. And and so we 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 move away as a society from having these moorings of you know objective truths that we all understand that we've all taken for granted as objective truths, and now here we are in a crazy society where we're undermining those very foundations, and people want to turn it into subjective morality, subjective truth. It's however you interpret it. It's whatever you want it to be. So. Um, so in my mind, that is the that is the real war. It's a war for truth. It's a war for objective reality. And in the book Christ versus Caesar, really the whole book stems from this one question I had for myself, uh, and that is, if we as Christians were to actually follow all of Christ's commandments, what would that look like? Again, going back to our religious freedom discussion, I don't think right. religious freedom is just about belief. It's about action. So right. if we as Christians modified all of our actions to be perfectly consistent with Christ's counsel and not make these little exceptions or, you know, ignore that one or don't pay attention to that one, uh, right? If we were to, again, no man can serve two masters or when he says, render unto Caesar, you know, that which is yes. Caesar's. Well, what Roman is Caesar? 13, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What What is Caesar's and what is, you know, not? And so we have to understand, was he saying that follow the law, do whatever you're told, you know, and, and just submit to whatever the civil government says? Or is there something more nuanced there to say, you know, Caesar doesn't actually own anything. He's a counterfeit God right. serving you know, Satan. And if we're really followers of Christ to whom all, you know, things belong and are subject to, then we're to render everything unto God and nothing unto Caesar. And we need to rebalance this idea that we shouldn't be good citizens. We should be good followers of Christ. And sometimes that means we'll be bad citizens. Sometimes right. that means we'll break some of Caesar's laws because our focus and priority is being good servants of the true king. I, as a backdrop of writing this book, I believe I, I shared this story in the book. Um, Again, as I'm pondering this question of what does it mean if we were to actually, in a political sense, an economic sense, if we were to live as Christ commanded in, in all these different teachings. And the story going through my mind was when Ron Paul, uh, who was then a presidential candidate. Right. In I recall the story from the book. Yeah. Yeah. He's on stage in South Carolina, a largely Christian conservative uh, Southern community. And he's with all the Republican uh, other candidates, and they're talking about foreign policy in the military. And uh, Ron Paul was making the point that, you know, we shouldn't have all these bases. We shouldn't have all this intervention. Bring the troops home. Stop the wars. He got some pushback from his saber rattling uh, adversaries who wanted more war and more conflict. And so he was given an opportunity to respond. And he said, how would we like it if another country were doing to us what we're doing to all these other countries? If they were setting up bases right mm -hmm. on our border, if they were bringing troops there, if they were you know, constantly intervening in our affairs, we wouldn't like it very much. We ought to practice a golden rule right? that right. we should do unto other countries as we would have mm -hmm. them do unto us. He was booed. He was wow. booed by these largely Incredible. Christian 
conservative community. So to me, it raised again that question, wait a minute, God's teaching to treat other people the way you want them to be uh, you want them to treat you does not have an asterisk on it. It doesn't say this applies only to you and your neighbor down the road. This applies to all human interaction and therefore right. by extension to government. And mm -hmm. so it was this fascinating uh, experience. I watched it live as that happened and I was just revolted by the, the reaction of the public. Um, and so that was kind of the, the impetus to writing the book and, and really trying to ponder for myself, if we took Christ at face value, if we really tried to apply it in a political sense, um, uh, what would that look like? And so the book is my effort to say, here's what I, I think it would require of us. Yeah, I think it's just brilliant. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed all of your books that I've read thus Thank far. You. Um, so uh, we featured, I think, now four of your books, or at least we've talked about four of them. Uh, leaving it well, actually more than that, if we count, of course, your your Tuttle series. So um, uh, on this program, we end off uh, Connor with uh, what we call the reading list. I think we've we've uh, featured some of your books. Are there any books that you would recommend uh, that perhaps are not your own or or some other resource that has really impacted you that you would recommend to people taking in this podcast that they would find meaningful in terms of expanding their understanding of some of the topics that you've been talking about today? Oh, I could give you a long list. Okay, uh, give us a couple. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick actually one. Uh, okay. The one, to the exclusion of all others, that I would say has uh, the most insight and practical application. It's a book written by a gentleman named Robert Cialdini. And the book is simply called Influence, okay. The Psychology of Persuasion. Uh, he's recently issued a, a newly released version with an expanded uh, new chapter. It is one of the best books I have ever read in order to understand how we are persuaded. His point in the book is to say, here are the tools of persuasion. You need to understand them, if for nothing else, than to be able to defend yourself against others who are trying to employ these tactics against you to manipulate you into buying something that they want you to buy or voting a certain way or, or you know, whatever. And so at a minimum, he says, understand these defensively so that you can better, you know, resist. Right. But also, like any tool, like a gun, it could be used good and bad, right? Also, now that you know these tools, hopefully you use them in a positive sense. Uh, so for example, when we're marketing our Tuttle Twins books, I am able to apply a lot of the lessons that I learned in this book about how to persuade other people to take action. For me, it's a positive thing in the sense that I know that these books, when families read them, do a lot of good. And so I want as many families as possible. I feel a moral imperative almost to find ways to get people to take action, get off the fence, you know, and, and uh, make the investment to go do this with their kids. So I try and use these tools uh, positively. So it's not a political book. It's really a, a psychology book, a marketing book, just to understand how uh, our brains are wired and how to persuade people. But it has so many fascinating applications and insights. Um, and maybe I'll say this, I'll indulge you with a second book and it's related sure. and it's much shorter. Um, it's a book called Propaganda. It was oh, written yes. uh, almost or over uh, uh, just about a century ago, I think 1928, yeah. uh, by a gentleman named Edward Bernays. He's the father of propaganda. He's the father of uh, public relations. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the double nephew of Sigmund Freud uh, by birth and by marriage. I think you so mentioned this book in Feardom, if I recall. Yes, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. I absolutely did. Edward Bernays, this short little book, Propaganda, is a fascinating expose as to how even a century ago, 
uh, propagandists were able to manipulate the public and to alter their opinions and thus their actions. And so when I read that book, when I talk to others about uh, the book, I say, you know, wouldn't you agree that our society has advanced technologically, uh, if nothing else, in a way that would make it even easier for propagandists than, you know, a century ago? The tools are the same, the methods are the same, but I would submit that their techniques are likely far more sophisticated mm -hmm. and advanced. And so this book from 1928 was kind of his way of openly saying, hey, here's what it's all about and here's what we're doing. Uh, and so reading those two together, uh, influence and propaganda, yeah. I think uh, offers a very illuminating educational experience to realize that we are in a mind war and that these tools yeah. are being used against us. So how can we defend ourselves and how can we fight back? I recall from your book also, you mentioned that uh... Bernays was horrified to learn that uh, Joseph Goebbels was using his techniques. Uh, right. But yeah, the, the, not the sort of flattery. Uh, uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Maybe maybe not so much. <laughs> maybe that. not always. <laughs> yes. Well, Connor, this has been an absolute pleasure. We're so grateful for for your time and for you for you uh, sharing your mind and your thoughts with us today. Thank you so much for your books. They're brilliant. I enjoy them very much. Thank I'm you. looking forward to diving into the Tuttle series. I haven't gotten that far yet. I've, I've gone for the 10% uh, of, your, <laughs> of your catalog so far. I'm looking forward to reading the new book. I didn't know about that one until today, but all of these are on our reading list for our show. So everybody, uh, you don't need to scribble down the titles. We're going to have them all here for you. And uh, we're going to have links to Connor's website and, and so on so you can uh, connect with him. Uh, but Connor, just uh, thank you so much for being, being with us and being our special guest on Gray Matter. Thank you. God bless you and all that you, all that you're doing to help people. Uh, really, it's wonderful. Thank I you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.